how's it and welcome to 3-Bit Design, where we break down some of the most influential games into the three bits that we think defined them the most. I'm Tristan. I'm Oliver. And this is our excuse to talk game design together. We like it very much. Today, we are looking at 2018's God of War. The big ol' reboot. The big ol' reboot. The dad of war, as some might say. <laughs> uh, a reminder to anyone listening or joining us for the first time, there are spoilers ahead, so don't keep that safe to your chest or be worried about that sort of thing. We're going to be talking about anything we feel is important. The structure of how these things work is we'll go through a very brief introduction and description on what the game is for today, and then we'll just dive into three topics or three areas of discussion that we've just randomly picked out of the game that we think are cool, and then we'll do a medium to deep dive on that thing. Does that sound mm-hmm. accurate, Oliver? Excellent. Excellent. All right, let's go straight into God of War. It is an action-adventure game. It was developed by Santa Monica Studio and published by Sony Interactive Entertainment. It was released in April 2018 for the PS4, and I think a Windows version was released fairly recently as time of recording, Mm, as in January 2022. The game is the eighth installment in the God of War series, the eighth chronologically, and the sequel to 2010's God of War 3. Unlike previous games, which were loosely based on Greek mythology, this installment is loosely inspired by Norse mythology, and the majority of it is set in ancient Scandinavia in the realm of Midgard. For the first time in the series, we have two protagonists, Kratos, who is our Greek god of war, still the only playable character, but now we have his young son Atreus, the companion character. A little bit of plot or story, I suppose, is following the death of Kratos' second wife, Atreus's mother, the journey to fulfill her request that her ashes be spread at the highest peak of the Nine Realms begins. And along their journey, they come into conflict with monsters and gods of the Norse world. In general, God of War received universal acclaim for its story, its world design, art direction, music, graphics, combat system, and characters. And in particular, I believe the dynamic between Kratos and Atreus was well lauded, uh, and I can totally understand why. Many reviewers successfully thought, or rather they thought, that the game successfully revitalized the series, uh, which I think is pretty accurate. Uh, A couple of other things in general, they sold over 5 million copies, and I know for a fact that in that first month that they sold the 5 million copies, I was one of the 5 million. I was very excited about this game. Me too. I (laughs) pre-ordered it, or ordered it, before even having a PlayStation 4. Oh, wow. That's that's how much I really wanted to play this game. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit of an opening introduction. Was there anything else you thought to add about either Santa Monica Studio or the game itself, Oliver? Um, I thought it'd be quite interesting to touch a little bit on Corey Balrog, who is the um, game director of the God <laughs> Not the uh, demon of the Minds of Moria, because I think <laughs> you've done that thing that I have to be so careful about, because his surname is so like a Balrog. But it's Barlog. Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. So, because <laughs> otherwise he's, <laughs> he's Durin's Bane, otherwise, right? Yeah, I was always like, that's kind of a cool last name, but all right. <laughs> Just think about a bar on top of a log. A Barlog. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Okay, well. Anyway, Corey. Corrected. I stand corrected. <laughs> Corey Barlog. Um, he has been around the franchise since the beginning. He was his first game with Santa Monica was God, the first God of War. He was a lead animator on that one. Then he became the director and writer of God of War Two, and then he was the writer on God of War: Chains of Olympus, and then he was God, director on God of War Three for the first eight months of development, um, while also being a writer on God of War: Ghosts of Sparta. Um, but then he left the studio in two thousand and seven. Uh, the third God of War actually got released in two thousand and ten, a few years later. Um, but he left in 2007 and then had a little bit of a gap where he went to a few different studios. He Actually, I saw he had credits as creative director on Happy Feet 2 for the Wii. I did not. Isn't interesting? Oh, <laughs> for the Wii. I thought you were going to say for the film. I was like, whoa. <laughs> no, the game. Um, and then he was also cinematics director on Tomb Raider Reboot for a little while, which is a little bit interesting because that was also kind of like a, a grown-up reboot of a franchise. Uh, so that might have inspired a little bit. 
Uh, it then rejoined in 2013 Santa Monica to reboot God of War um, after becoming married and a father himself. So that all that whole vibe really seeped into the game, I think, and it's, it's a big part of what it turned out to be. Um, and then the only sort of big God of War release that was done in his absence was God of War Ascension, which was released in 2013 and then was their last game before this reboot. Um, so which so the God of War reboot was a big departure from the roots with Kratos as a father in Norse mythology, as you said. Um, and also he has an axe for a weapon instead of usual dual-wielded chain blades. He does have them later on in the game, I believe. Um, that moment but... was high, high <laughs> epic for me. I remember Very that cool. vividly. Yeah. Uh, and sort of the rage-fueled, um, slightly machoist, overly machoist character from back in the early days of games has now grown up together with the industry in this reboot. Um, as you play as the father character, and then also interestingly, the God of War reboot was released alongside a short text-based prequel, God of War Call of the Wilds, which was released on Facebook Messenger which follows Atreus' first adventure in the Norse wilds. I didn't know about this. I found out. Mm, same in researching. I never knew. <laughs> and then also a mobile AR game was released called Mimir's Vision, which gives a little bit of a background on Norse setting. And also a novelization of the game was written by by Barlog's father. And oh, is it, is it the father? Yeah. That's, now, cool. that's a lovely little note, isn't it? I tried mm -hmm. reading that. I think I read the first chapter and I couldn't get into it. But I think at the same time, I was also trying to read the Assassin's Creed novelizations. Oh, yeah. One or two of them. And I was like, I wonder if this could work. You know, like a novelization of a game concept or idea. <laughs> <laughs> For me personally, I couldn't get into it, alas. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, and then now he's stepped back as game director for a little while. He's producer on the God of War Ragnarok, which is yet to be released at the time of recording. But um, yeah, he's still part of the franchise ongoing. Was it just a rumor that he's working on a new project? I think he said when he was when he said he was stepping back. I think he said he's working as on a different project as a director. Mm. Um, that's exciting. I'm not entirely sure that he said that. I think he said that. Yeah, I vaguely recall that as well. But hey, <laughs> this is a podcast where we are, you know, all about the serious facts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm expecting big and awesome things in the future from him as well. There is a big um, making of documentary of the go of this 2018 God of War. Game. Oh yeah, raising Kratos, I think, or something. Yeah, it's like uh, worth a watch if if. If you're into sort of the behind the scenes looks and things, it's, it it's a whole good. cinematic. It's a basically like a big budget movie, and the way they made this game is quite crazy. It is astounding. And with that craziness and astonishment, shall we dive into our first bit, Oliver? Let's do it. The first bit we wanted to talk about is um, the hub world. So. Hub worlds are a sort of world system that a bunch of games uh, follow a structure uh, where you have this main area that you will frequently come back to after levels and then go to the next level from that area, come finish the level, come back, go to the next level. Uh, most famously, that was f first done, I believe, in Mario 64. Um, that's a very famous example of the hub world, um, where you sort of could roam around Peach's castle. Um, it was a good demo of movement mechanics and things like that, uh, safe space to practice. It makes so um, much sense that that would be the first recorded use of that as a design <laughs> thing, because I find it is consistently the, the example used when talking yeah. about hub world design. Yeah, even still, which is crazy. It's It's... It was such a good use of that with a bunch of secrets. There's like a bunch of secrets in the hub world and the different ways you sort of find the levels and things. It's very well done there. Um, but anyway, in this game, um, also worth noting, a hub world is just to explain it a little bit. So you have that 
sort of central area to go into levels. It's kind of a glorified main menu in a sense where you, instead of like having your usual level selector, you're kind of in the space that you can explore with a little bit of extra trimmings on it. Um, but then you go from that space into the different levels, essentially, and then come back to go on to the next one. So within God of War itself, this hub space is the lake where the world serpent lives, the giant world serpent, which is very cool. Um, it's quite unique for an action-adventure game, which is why it intrigues me, and I think it's one of our bits in this case, because it's quite unique for the genres. Um, because I kind of level this game to the more cinematic games, like The Last of Us, Uncharted, the, the Naughty Dog games. Um, and those games are very much linear, whereas this game starts off very linear. It's completely linear up to the point where you reach the um, World Serpent Lake. But once you do reach it, uh, you start getting that openness a little bit. You have that hope world where you can, from there, fast travel into the different realms and explore more widely to your own liking, which is very... It's like a very unique approach for the genre, I think, as a whole. It's also interesting... So the way the hub world is introduced in this game is incredibly awesome. So <laughs> the the first time you roll up, it's very misty. You're in your little canoe with Atreus. And it's very misty. You only see a light in the in the distance. And then you approach the light and you ask Atreus to read what it says because he's your translator on the go and then when he says it um it's, it's basically a call for the world serpent to come out and then the world serpent comes out you, there's like huge waves forming crashing and then this giant serpent just comes up to the screen um it's a very awesome moment i think that's probably the coolest hub world introduction i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point the, everything Everything that happens with Yomengander in that game is just so <laughs> beyond because of the sheer size. And is it the hub, that whole process of like revealing because water mm. is lowering or whatever yeah. happens two, one or two times, two or three times throughout the game, doesn't it? Yeah, it evolves, which is super cool. So, yeah, so the World Serpent moves, creates waves, and then drops the, the water level, which then reveals all of these gates that you can travel to uh, with the system. And then, as you say, over over time with the game, as you unlock new stuff and progress in the story, the serpent moves even more, and then the water level drops again, more stuff is unlocked, you can explore new things. It's a very cool sort of evolution of, of this space. There, yeah. I, sorry, <laughs> sudden intake of breath. I didn't mean yeah, to... I was like, here we go. <laughs> I didn't mean, want to introduce, interrupt you too much because I think you're no, on no, a nice no, roll. That's cool. But you reminded me of an article I was looking over today in preparation for our chat by one of the senior systems designers. And okay. it's on the PlayStation blog. I think the, the man's name was Anthony Demento. And they were talking about the exploration. And something I didn't realize or didn't connect is in managing all the exploration quests and this pseudo open world style hub thing. Um, the idea was that the player had the, the goal rather, was that the player had the freedom to decide when they wanted do a quest and, and in what order but mm. by having the hub world exposed as it is they had to also the challenge i guess was they had to match tone so they mention um this dementos fella mentions a, a tone where atreus learns that he's a god the attitude of atreus changes and what they had to do is they locked out for a brief time a certain quests that just wouldn't gel nicely at that time of the game mm. so if you hadn't done them by that point what they did is they used uh Jormungandr to kind of uh block or, or gate certain paths so that you wouldn't be able to access those quests and i thought that was really clever a really clever use of using again the world as you say to give you those feelings yeah that's interesting i didn't know that they block it off at any point that was going to be one of my points about um this sort of hub space um, allows you allows the player to because it's the first space that kind of introduces side quests there's a few sort of bits you can do you can explore and uh, there's these 
lost souls i think or something that you can save by finding by uh, recovering their body or or fulfilling their last wish or something i can't quite remember what it was but you these are like basically side quests that are not tied to the main story you can go and do them and by doing them you unlock these um special rewards uh so it's and up until then as i said before the game is completely linear so this hub world kind of gives gives the room to do these side quests and them being in that space also allows you allows the player to take it at their own pace so if knowing that you're always going to come back to the space after visiting the realms and progressing the main story you can kind of decide to go explore this area of the lake at a certain time then you notice the other area but you're like I kind of want to progress in the story that's cool you can go progress in the story you know you're going to come back and it's, and only at the very end when you're actually going to scale the mountain and play the end game parts up until then you pretty much are at liberty to do these quests at your own pace but like you said I guess there is that one restriction where then they get locked do they get unlocked again afterwards? Do you yes, know? yeah, it's just okay, for okay. a brief time. It just because they decided that that wouldn't match the tone of the narrative. If you're mm. like, oh, super serious, uh, discovering you're a god. Right, right, right. Oh, hey, let's go free the spider <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Yeah. So a few more things on the hub. The first, uh, first time you come across it, you don't really use it as a hub. You the game kind of nudges you to keep heading towards your main objective until so you keep going up the mountain until you're hit by this blocker which is the black breath i think it's called um which at that point you have to return and start doing these other quests that allow you to overcome this obstacle to reach the end goal uh, and then at that point once you go back to the hub after that it kind of explains the whole uh, realm travel system and fast travel and stuff like that which is which is cool um you also do also interestingly just before you get to the hub you get the witch's compass from the lady that i forgot the name of just now oh, freya that's the oh one. we're talking about <laughs> freya yes um she gives you the witch's compass which adds an element of ui to your screen uh, it's the classic sort of waypoint compass at the top of the screen that, as you look around, moves along with where you're looking, uh, which is quite interesting because up to that point in the game, you didn't really need a compass. But once you reach the bigger hub, uh, it starts getting a bit more complex and you start having those side mission options that um, I guess the additional waypointing helps. And so it kind of ties that into the narrative at that point to allow players to easily, more easily navigate that bigger space that has now become available. And then also a cool thing about the space is, again, the, I, the element of allowing to explore at your own pace allows a bunch of secrets and collectibles to be hidden in it, which I think it's nice. It's like uh, a little bit of a tutorialization space as well. There's, as you visit the lake around you, Upon the first visit, there'll be a lot of stuff you can't go to yet, or like chests that are wrapped in vines and things that you can't unlock yet. You see all of these things from later in the game, that kind of like teasing you mechanics and things that you're unlock later on, a bit like the Metroidvanias, which we discussed a little bit in one of our previous episodes. Um, and it's kind of nice that this area gives you a little bit of a snapshot of what's to come in the game, and then also knowing that once you unlock those abilities, which you usually do within the realms, then once you come back, you know, you've oh, I remember there is that thing that this ability now unlocks, and then you can basically keep exploring the area. It allows sort of a nice back and forth system that ties it all together. It's also, it's kind of a nice hub because it's exploration without things getting too tedious. There's not a slew of NPCs around, which a lot of hub games do where you every time you come back you got to talk to everyone if you want to find out all the dialogue and things like that this game keeps it very minimalistic which i think suits the style of the game very well um where it's kind of this huge world and not not a conglomeration of a lot of characters in one space 
So, oh yeah, and also some of the late game content it teases. There is these, like in my first playthrough, I, the first thing I came across in that lake when I was looking around was those enemies with the question marks as their level. Is that if they're way too strong? Yeah, that's like if they're over X levels above you, then at that point they're like immeasurably stronger than you. So that <laughs> thinking of like Dragon Ball Z, like their power is over nine nine nine. So they basically change, they swap the UI to be question marks to kind of be like you're you're even crazy to look at these guys. Uh-huh. Um, but that didn't stop me from trying to like, <laughs> trying to kill them. I think I I think. I spent like two hours trying to kill, trying to kill them at like a way too low level, uh, just because I knew it was possible. You like you can slowly chip away at it, mm. and I eventually ended up doing it, well um, which was cool. It's kind of nice that it gives you the option, but also, if if those hit you once, you die. <laughs> so it was a very tedious process, but it's it's all cool that it like gives you all these options and and. The question mark power level is kind of like very intimidating and foreboding of things to come, which is quite cool. Um, and as a sort of last thing is also the hub is a nice jumping off point to tie the story that ties the story together in a lot of places. So you go to the different realms. Um, you kind of before going there, you kind of have a chat with Freya and the blacksmiths and all that. Then you visit realms on the quests that they send you on. You find what you need, you come back, and then you basically regroup, uh, report your progress. And the the narrative just keeps evolving in this space, which is quite nice because it's kind of a, you know, it's a non-dangerous um, space. You can kind of relax and you know it's kind of a break in the action. So it allows you to recoup and it's a natural place for this narrative bits to fall into without the player wanting to uh, sort of skip everything and move on to the to the next action scene um, it's it's like a do a denouement for each chapter which resolves what you've just done mm-hmm. and then sets up the next step in the story it's mm-hmm. an important structural el- element to the story of, of this game and finally there is also it's a clever way to be able to reuse assets in a sense because as I think Freya says in dialogue explicitly in the game she says all realms exist within the same physical space so what they can do is when you visit the other realms it they basically reuse the same layout of the lake with the bridge and everything oh, but yes, just they add do. stuff on top of it so it's kind of like reusing the level design it's a it's a neat little tool for doing so. I always find that so impactful because yes, you're right. On the one hand, from a design or developer perspective, you're like, oh my gosh, thank goodness we've saved assets. <laughs> but story-wise, I feel like uh, as a viewer, as a receiver of that story, I'm putting so much more. Um, I don't want to say appreciation, but I understand so much more because I'm comparing it to the thing it was, and mm. there's just it feels so much richer because of it. I don't know if it's true or if there's some sort of psychological uh, reason for that but that's how it feels yeah 100% but yeah that wraps it up for the hub world discussion unless you have anything to add we can move on to bit number two let us move on I like that bit number two is all about this camera that they decided to choose to go with for 2018's God of War. So God of War uses this over-the-shoulder free camera with the game in one shot, as as if it were taken in one shot, in a one-take shot, one-shot take. <laughs> like uh, the Revenant. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I went looking for that because I also thought the same thing. It's um, Who's that? That's Alejandro González Iñárritu. Yeah, it's the guy who did Birdman I'm as well. O- I'm not always certain how to pronounce his name, but that's him. Yeah, <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> um, there's that opening of the Revenant that is like one long take, which I loved, mm-hmm. and I think Alfonso Cuaron also does that in Children of Men, mm-hmm. and in a couple of times in Children of Men, actually, it's it's very famous for that that one take cinema, you know. 
But anyway, yeah. so this camera choice was different from the fixed cinematic camera they had for the previous God of Wars. And I think it's because or, or part of the choice to work with Doria Razi, who is a cinematographer by trade, and they brought this person from the film industry on board to the game stuff. And I feel like mm. it's revelatory for me as like a film fan. I don't know if you've watched uh, Doria Razi's GDC talk. I haven't, no. I would highly recommend it to you and anyone listening. It's really um, insightful in terms of also understanding how he, what he brought to the game. I think it's, it's brilliant, this idea of the seamless cut between mm. gameplay and cutscene and also the lack of any loading screen. Correct me if I'm wrong, depending on how much you've played recently. Um, there is no loading screen in this game. Once you're in, you're in, right? I think other than when you fast travel, yes. And is the fast travel not cheated by the you walk into the tree of life thing and then you kind of run around until the thing loads? That's true. But I think when you walk into the tree of life, there's a bit of a transition, right? Oh, okay, yeah, like a little bit of a flashing <laughs> screen. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty seamless. It's pretty yes. seamless. And Especially those... now with the PS5 and the PC. Oh my goodness, yes. I am... I've only recently come into possession of a PS5 a bit late in the game, as it were. And in preparation for this, I booted up God of War again, and I was like, oh, it, now I can turn it to enhanced performance mode. That's great. <laughs> and I was playing a little bit last night. I shut down the PlayStation. I was like, cool, I'll try again. And about an hour ago, I just went on and quickly messed around a bit. And it was immediately back into the game. And it was so, I was so shocked. I was like, wait, I haven't like prepared myself i just i thought it would take a while to load up and it just went straight back in and yeah it's really it's really something to see yeah it's quite cool because as you say like the whole one take thing it even starts like that like, oh, it yes. transitions from the background of the main menu mm -hmm. into uh kratos chopping a tree it's my favorite and it's so yeah, it's very cool it's so immersive isn't it you just you're there the whole time Right. I was watching, well, not watching, I was playing through the first fight with Boulder again. Mm -hmm. And just the amount of times it cuts between, well, not, it doesn't cut, it just moves between <laughs> a cutscene and gameplay. And you're just like, oh, this is amazing. I just, I'm, I'm here for all of it. And I, and I don't know, it just feels great. It feels, yeah. but, <sighs> visceral is a bit of a strange word, but it, it feels like there, you know, you're, you're in it. <laughs> yeah, that Boulder fight is probably one of the, if not, the coolest boss fight I've ever played in a game. Yeah, true that, true that. Uh, and yeah, that's that's it's really a small, tight bit, and I was hoping it would, you know, if you had any other thoughts on it or any other examples, but really for me it was just the immersive, impactful experience of constantly being with Kratos and this whole adventure, even with the cinematographical kind of shifts. I think in Doria Razi's GDC talk, he talks about how to frame a scene away from just looking over Kratos' shoulder, he had to do a lot of tricks to kind of um, move the camera and set up different shots. But for the most part, you are there with Kratos the whole time. And that was astounding to me. And the fact that I never had to wait for a loading screen, like, I know that when he's lifting up a boulder or opening a door, there's a little bit of loading happening behind the scenes, but I yeah. accept that. It was great. Yeah, and it's and it's definitely impressive considering that this was made before the new generation of consoles. Because with the SSD and the PS5s and the Series S Xs, um, everything just loads a lot faster. And that's why games like Returnal or something, there's some crazy loading time transitions and things like that but they didn't have that when they made this game and yet it's such a seamless experience so that must have been so much optimizing and planning yeah and i think say. it's similar to ghost of tsushima they came out towards the end of the the mm. console generation didn't they so it's like at that time devs had learned all they can learn about the <laughs> yeah, device and i'm assuming they were just pushing it to the limits of its life yeah, and another Sony studio, so mm. they might have borrowed some tips and tricks. Yeah, I thought it was quite. I thought it was really cool for sure. I also the sort of continuous cut, I think, is what definitely is definitely a huge part of what makes this game feel so cinematic. It just feels like you're playing a movie almost, mm. and um, and I think 
it also hugely adds to how brutal the combat and things feels. Yeah. Like when you're when you're doing a finisher and the camera just like shakes and like zooms in as you rip open this this enemy. It's it's or or when you're jumping on top of a huge giant and you're ripping or you're snapping his neck and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like these camera movements as like a continuous process just make everything look 10 times as awesome, right? Yep, yep, here, here. It worked greatly in its advantage. And I know I come across as like a gushing fanboy right now, which which is true. I don't uh, challenge <laughs> that. But I thought to spice things up, I'd throw in a quote I found from uh, an article that is a little bit more critical about God of War as it stands as a game. Have you, do you know the, the publication, online publication called D-Orbital? D-Orbital. I have not heard of that one. D-Orbital Media, I don't know how prominent they still are. A couple of years ago, they were doing a lot of stuff. Um, but I found a, they did like a feature spread of a couple of articles on God of War and Amir al Asser's article called Battles, or rather, God of War's Battles Tell a Story with Confused Intentions. He has this wonderful phrase that I just want to share with you. Uh, he says, as part of its desire to tell a more grounded story, God of War switches to an over-the-shoulder third-person perspective. Its camera closely hugs Kratos, framing him with more intimacy than he'll ever show his son. <laughs> and I thought it was so great. He goes into more detail about that. That's pretty good, yeah. the, the confusion between, <laughs> uh, like, yes, you try to be intimate and, and close up and look at all this this violence and, and we can feel it. And then it's like, but you're also trying to tell this story of a, a father and a son and... Mm. The, the challenges or the difficulty of this father trying to be intimate with his son. Personally, I think it is a wonderful story of how hard that is and not being a good father given your history and mm. who the hell you are. But yeah, I just thought it was a great uh, critical look at God of War and what it says through its gameplay and its narrative and how those two things are trying to be harmonious but also kind of pushing up against each other. Yeah, that's a great quote. <laughs> That's awesome. I have nothing else to add on this bit. Do you have any other thoughts? Um, nope. I think we're good to move. Oh, I was just going to say, in in just as a term of like contrast in com- and in comparison, the original God of War games, they were more, they were like side view. Were they? Uh, I know the camera was much further back. I think I, think I played a bit of the first one and there was... There was definitely some like almost like side view platforming. Yeah, there was a bit points. of that. I remember. So yeah. And and Kratos stays at the center of the camera, I think, and then it just moves mm. with him. Yeah. So yeah, they they really redefined it for this one. And well done to them. I'm a big fan of that choice. That is it for bit number two. Awesome. Bit number three then is. Boy. <laughs> also known as your NPC companion or buddy AI, as I like to say. Um, with this bit, I wanted to talk a little bit about Atreus and what he adds to the game as this AI companion that you have with you for the whole ride, I think. I don't think he ever gets separated, does he? Oh, the, he does Ill. when he goes into the light and things like that. Yeah, and then you have yeah. to go get your chaos blades. Oh, yes, that as well, yeah. Go down into hell to do something or other. Okay, well, 90% of the game. Yes. <laughs> At least. Um, so, yeah, AI buddies, they don't always work well in games. They are very hard to do and get right because AI is... Always, and especially if it's um, AI that's supposed to work with you and it work against you, um, it's easy to walk into other characters that you don't control and things like that. But I think this game did a very good job with their buddy AI and must have taken a lot of iteration. Um, And it adds a lot to the game that wouldn't have worked as well otherwise. Like, for example... It's a very handy narrative device for the game. So Atreus points out a lot of things 
along your journey that the player might not notice and things like that, little details about the world. Um, he also sort of stands and waits at points of interest and things like that, uh, collectibles and such, which kind of, especially early on in the game, kind of introduce you to these things that you can find in these elements and these the translations and such. Um, and also, he is the one that's keeping notes in the notebook, in the sort of compendium, is that the word? Uh, that sounds like a word that I'm happy to accept. <laughs> Some word of such. Um, <laughs> type of codex, keeping all the info about um, all the lore of the things you come across, um, uh, details about the enemies. Um, he sort of jots those down in his notebook. I think that's really great because Kratos doesn't seem like the guy that's going to stop and make notes, you know? Yep, and I think they that systems designer around exploration in that article, he also says Kratos is not going to do that, no. But he's also not <laughs> going to be super interested on helping someone with a fetch quest, for example, which mm. was very challenging for right. the, the quest department, as it were. And I think Atreus also was that a catalyst for the player. Yeah, that's a good point. He kind of like pushes him in directions sometimes. Mm. Um, so yeah, he he's also the one that's knowledgeable in the different scriptures around the world, which is also great because for the player to be on the side of the player character, which is Kratos in this case, then it's much more immersive and uh, relatable if if the character essentially knows as much as you do in a lot of things. And I think if Kratos was able to translate all this text, I think that's kind of like distancing you a little bit from the player character. Mm. Having Atreus do it for you is um, like that doesn't affect your immersion with Kratos, which is I think it's it's a great tool that kind of allows these things to happen. Um, and again, him writing it in his notebook allows you to read 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 up on these things a little bit more, whereas um, Kratos's attention span may have waned by the time um, Atreus is his third sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's and this little notebook is a great sort of tip system that they worked into the game through the narrative, mm -hmm. which is very tricky to do because. Uh, the more you face enemies, the more uh, the codex about a certain enemy gets developed, the more details get added about how you can, their their strengths, their weaknesses, um, and how you can face up to them. So um, I think that's really cool, especially because you're in the heat of the battle and you wouldn't be thinking about these things. Whereas Atreus is more, he's also fighting, but he's also a little bit more on the sidelines as you so he can he, he could realistically be paying more attention to these things. Mm. Um, so clever combat system tip system. It's also interesting that Atreus. Um, I kind of compare him in a sense to like on a certain level to Trico in the Last Guardian, mm. but as like the opposite, <laughs> the opposite buddy. So Trico, you're constantly um, calling towards you, but I think Atreo, like you're also calling the boy a lot. <laughs> <You're call> <laughs> yes, you <laughs> he are. says a lot of boy um, and making him come to you. But I think, especially early on in the game, I noticed um, Atreus often nudges you towards him if you're kind of lingering in a space too long trying to find things. Um, also if you're facing doors that are clearly blocked by a mechanic that you don't have yet, then Atreus will comment on those things and things like that. So he's kind of guiding you instead of you guiding him. Which in the beginning of the game, I found there was a moment where I found it a little bit tedious. And I think there are parts in the game where that might happen, where um, the, I completed the game a long time ago, so I can't remember super, super fresh in my mind. But from what I played recently... At the start of the game, there is like this little first space that you can kind of go in three directions. Mm -hmm. And if you go in the first direction first, it's kind of like, oh, but the deer is this way. Mm. And things like that. And, then, and I remember that. To me, that's kind of like as someone who likes to 100% things and explore everything. 
it was kind of like a little bit off-putting to hear those type of things. It's, it's like the game is like for like kind yeah. of forcing your hand a little bit, which I found it's a that difficult. Yes, it that I can rec I can totally recognize the that it feels like a forcing of the hand, and yet I felt like it immersed me further because I think the next line that Atreus says, if you continue just going in the other way to explore stuff, is I think he says something like, well, fine, we'll go where yeah. you want to go. Yeah, that's true. And I was like, yeah, say that, yeah, you petulant child. <laughs> <laughs> I am going this way. <laughs> that's true. That's true. They, they, they played it in very, like, very well, I yeah. think. But, but there is that sort of difficult balance you need to strike with those buddy characters always, I think. Yeah. They did it. I think they, in general, they did a very good job with it, though, and especially with the whole notebook and tip system, I think. It works a wonder. Something I'd love to throw in at this point is something I learned only recently in preparing for this and reading up on it and discovering another deorbital article. Honestly, go read the stuff there. They're really good. And they, they, I love their critique. They write really, really good games journalism. On the topic mm. of the sons as a character, as an NPC companion, being helpful, I understand it was one of God of War's pillars. You know, they had their three pillars for combat, father and son, and exploration mm. under father and son they have son helps not hinders the player <laughs> right and this one article written by uh, one of the contributors they go by m and they they have an excellent critique of centralizing kratos and and his treatment and control of the son essentially as his usefulness so i don't know it just it really breaks down how kratos is the center of his universe and atreus is only uh, valid or uh, validified or whatever the word is that I'm not getting right now uh, in his usefulness which is a a sort of dark almost melancholic view of uh, the characters and I feel like it's that tension again of as you've exactly pointed out the game developers and by design we know that a player is going to be frustrated if the companion is not helping you but in mm. terms of the narrative and the story it suggests that the only uh, justification, I suppose, or recognition of that character is if they are useful, then they can stay. If they're not, <laughs> they're not coming on this journey. And the, the article's name is A Father Presses, A Son Acts. <laughs> and I just thought it was just such a lovely critique of everything we're talking about now. The idea that you have this companion who is helping you so much in all the ways of the game. Mm. Yeah, I think that... that that's sums it up very nicely. I also think, um, I think again, that kind of um, pulls a parallel with Trico from The Last Guardian because you need him, you need Trico just to get across the big gaps and things like that. I think they must have taken good inspiration from, from each other. Um, yeah, which is also a game I think we should discuss at some point, but that'll be another episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm keen for that. Absolutely. I still um, need to play it in, in earnest. I've oh, yeah. seen a couple of things, like design-wise, I have a friend who said, yes, play that game. Mm -hmm. um, and I love, isn't it Ueda? Yeah, yeah. it is. It's just a genius, uh, uh -huh. absolute craftsman. Uh, but, yeah, I would, but I would really recommend that one. We are still here. Is there any other points around the boy-son companion to make? Um, just the point of... I Just the point of, like, you're able to upgrade him as well, which is quite interesting. You're able to... Make him more useful. Make him more useful, indeed. <laughs> which, um, again, touches on your point there. <laughs> um, and I think it's a little bit of an interesting one because he's useful... In a certain, to like a certain extent, and he mostly targeting one specific enemy, he'll be like most useful. Um, and then, so you can upgrade his, you can upgrade his equipment, uh, and you can upgrade his abilities, I think. Mm. Um, and then, depending on how you upgrade his equipment, he grows certain strengths and things like that. Um, but it's, I find it quite interesting because the, a lot of the resources you use to upgrade Atreus are resources you use to upgrade yourself. And I found myself 
only upgrading Atreus <laughs> like ah. as a last resort. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's it again. It's like the Kratos-centric gameplay. It's like, ah, yeah. uh, well, you know, Sun can be effective if if he must. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it's a little bit of an interesting one. It was like, why would I use my resources on this person that is not me? <laughs> um but yeah, he was, and I think he gets more helpful with the different arrow types he unlocks later on in the game as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, vital nice. for progression, right? It's like yeah. you can't proceed unless you do things a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also found, especially early on, uh, it's kind of not super intuitive to use him, Atreus. Like because you have to press square to shoot his arrows, right? And it's kind of like, while you're focusing on your combos and things like that, it feels kind of like an additional button you're pressing a little bit out of what you're trying to focus on. Mm. Like a little bit of a spam button, in a way, I felt like. Um, But yeah. But it it does add a lot, obviously. And and if it was like fully AI-controlled, it would make it too easy, I think. Yeah, agreed. I really like... The control and I double checked. I think if you go to the controller settings, it doesn't say boy button, but it does say something like dedicated sun button. <laughs> and I love that very much because, like you, I feel like the dynamic duo that is represented by you being able to push that button while doing your like attacks on the trigger buttons, I thought is mm-hmm. is excellent. And I yeah. have to say, for my final contribution to whatever this discussion is around the boy companion or the boy button <laughs> is what blew my mind and is forever remembered by me personally, anecdotally, is that there's a point later on in the game when Atreus is throwing a huffy and he's being upset and he's not listening to you in the narrative mm-hmm. and he doesn't pay attention and doesn't respond when you push that button. And I thought that was a genius mm. moment where the mechanic amplifies the narrative. And I remember doing it going, oh my gosh, he's not listening. <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what Little the story brat. is telling me. It is amazing. I was like, this is beautiful. This is that is really good. Yeah. absolute harmony. That's like the attention to detail that we love. Mm. Just as a final point as well, I think the contrast of... I think the contrast of the boy as your buddy... Um, the sort of like do-goody boy, he's he's afraid to kill even a deer in the beginning of the game, things like that. It's like such a big contrast with Kratos, who is known as this sort of super rage-filled, aggressive character. And I think that that helps drive the story so much, that sort of contrasting dynamic. Mm. Um, and is what allows the game to sort of bring those narrative themes home where... And allow those characters to sort of meet common ground by the end where they they learn how to better communicate with each other, which at the start of the game is is sort of very limited, right? Absolutely. I think that was also another one of those father-son pillars for them. So I'm glad it is recognizable by someone who mm-hmm. played the game that they have this symbiotic relationship and that Atreus humanizes Kratos a bit more. And that they teach each other. Father teaches son, but son also teaches father. Yeah. He humanizes Kratos, and Kratos teaches Atreus to be a god. <laughs> oh, on that bombshell, I'm happy to park <laughs> this discussion, this three-bit design dive. What do you say? Yep. I feel like I've named Atreus in like three different ways throughout this podcast. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Atreus, Atreus, it's all the same. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> boy um thank you uh, so much to everyone for listening and uh coming along with us it's one of my favorite games i'm really glad we got to talk about it mm-hmm. um it is now that time when we wrap up by asking each other what we've been playing recently that is not god of war indeed i have myself been playing through the Monkey Island games, because I've never played them before. Oh, you mean the OG original ones? The originals. Well, oh. I'm playing the um, special edition or whatever. It's like a re-release they did, which is has a new art style and things, but it also very nicely has a button to revert to the original pixel art style, which I've made good use of. That's pretty cool. I don't think I play the original Monkey Islands either, but I know that they're, you know, stalwart exemplars of mm-hmm. a genre 
yeah, they're sort of the pillars of interactive storytelling back in the day. Mm-hmm. Very, very well written, very funny. It's a, it's a good little adventure. Lovely. How about yourself? I have recently played and completed with the utmost joy Astro's Playroom. Mm. So I think we know that this comes with the PS5. And I thought, okay, yeah, you play that thing. I recognized at one point I was playing and I had a stupid grin on my face. <laughs> and I was suddenly aware. I was like, I just went outside my body briefly. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm smiling. I don't usually smile like this when I play these games. And I was <laughs> I was so enamored with what was happening on the screen and how I was engaging through this haptic device of this fancy-ass controller. And I was mm. like, this is, this is magic. I really felt like a kid again. And maybe it's just the nostalgia of when I grew up and having an old PlayStation 1 with that demo disc so that at the very end of the game, with that T-Rex, I was like, when it walked out of the shadows, I remember seeing that for the first time on a little CRT monitor with my controller <laughs> and its long wire to the TV and going, oh, it's a T-Rex. Look how real it is. It's so, <laughs> the graphics are amazing. <laughs> um, and to just have that moment of playing, fighting it as some sort of mad boss and then it evolving into this other thing. Oh, stunning. The whole game was glorious mm. and beautiful. And I just kudos to all of the devs who worked on it. Yeah, I love that game. It's so cool. I think it's also such a nice length. Yes. And it's such an awesome showcase of what the controller can do and the 3D sound and stuff of the PS5. I'd love to see more games use the controllers as well as that game did. Yeah. Um, But I'm sure we will get that in the coming years. Also, it was very... I think that was the first game I actually went for the Platinum Trophy. Hey! Never went back since. <laughs> now I'm platinuming everything. Yeah, that's the only way you play games now. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, thank you very much, Oliver, for joining me in this conversation. Thank you to our listeners as well. How can people get a hold of us? You can get a hold of us on Twitter at 3BitDesign. And that is that. Uh, it's a great place. Of the world. Uh, I guess it's time to wrap up, Oliver. It so is. Have a lovely time of your lives. Thank you for listening. Good. Thank you. And play God of War if you haven't. Bye. Because it's great. So bye. I'm totally going to put that at the end (laughs) after the, the soundtrack. That's great.